we are Tampa Bay Ventures, and we are a venture fund based in the uh, Tampa Bay region, uh, Hillsborough, Pasco, Polk County, all you know, any any and everywhere in this in this region. We're looking at investing in growth tech-enabled companies. Um, our general partners are uh, Marcus Adolfson, Tom Frederick, and myself, Wesley Barnett. And then we have Andreas here as well. Andreas, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I joined them as general partner as well um, at the foundation of the fund. I was previously a venture capitalist in, in Stockholm, Sweden, and discovered that the Tampa Bay area was incredibly undervalued for technology. So uh, I, we, couldn't, we couldn't be luckier, I think, as a group to have the diversified experience that we have as general partners. And Andreas really brings that feet on the ground experience. I mean, he's he's a young go getter that has, you know, the real world experience in Stockholm and elsewhere doing this for a living. So he, he's really uh, a, he was a great find. I mean, when Marcus brought this to Tom and I, he kind of already had Andreas lined up and that was that sealed the deal that, you know, this is a team that can get something done. So I feel like we're all kind of here on the ground floor and we're going to be here for the next three decades or more. and you know, we're, we're growing with the catapult to the world, with the Florida Polytechs. These things are all just getting off the ground. So we're just one part of that ecosystem is the, the venture capital component. That makes sense. You know, and, and so, and so, you know, when you all were, uh, were starting the fund, you know, how did you hope for it to be different than what you already saw out there? Um, I mean, I think if, in particular with, with venture funds, um, what you really have to remember is that they, they function quite diff- differently than other investment vehicles. So the vast majority of investment vehicles are your, your returns or how well you do as a function of selection, right? If you and I both try and pick stocks, uh, if you pick stocks at the right time and the right companies, your return may be better than mine. Versus with venture capital, it's very, especially at the early stage, it's very geographically restricted. So it's almost more of a, a function of access. Do you have access to the best companies and do the best companies have access to you? And the timing of those two things coming together is, is, can be very difficult to time with a venture fund. But if you look at both Lakeland and Tampa in, in the greater Tampa Bay area, uh, you have numerous cities that are some of the fastest growing in the country. Um, you have, I think, the Tampa Bay region was just voted as the number one startup ecosystem uh, in the country by Forbes. So... With that, not having an early stage venture fund that was solely dedicated on investing in companies in this region, to us seemed like a, uh, a large opportunity, not just for ourselves, but for the, the companies that we will end up supporting. That makes sense because you're focused solely on this area and not you know, maybe nationwide. You're able to maybe get a more of a boots on the ground approach with the startups that are budding in this area. And that kind of played into the the reason that our fund is the the size that it is and things of that nature, you know, most of the big money, they have to deploy a lot of capital. They're looking at New York, Silicon Valley, LA, Miami even. Um, but we wanted the founders in this area to not think they had to leave this area to go to one of those primary markets. There's going to be funding for them right here, which, like you said, the access to capital is, is very important. And do you think like for, for a lot of those investors that are looking at a fund like this, like that, that part of their desire is getting their hands kind of dirty with something in their community that they can kind of sink their teeth into versus something that maybe is not as local or as relatable to them? Well, yeah, being here, boots on the ground, I think that's, that's key, especially for these early stage companies. They, they have a lot of times great ideas, but they don't have everything that's necessary to run a, an effective business. So we try to provide some of our 
expertise. Uh, our, some of our general partners have just immense expertise in entrepreneurship and running these tech startups and small businesses. So they can provide uh, insight and mentoring on a, on a very uh, one-to-one level. That makes sense. So like, a, you know, from b- big piece of what might draw um, potential companies to invest in into you is not just the check you're going to write, but more so the infrastructure of your, of your fund, the team that they can leverage now that, that, that they're part of the family. Yeah, Andreas can talk a little bit about. Yeah, so like, who who makes up the team, and, and you know, where, where do you see them fitting in when they're working with a, with someone that you all would invest into? Um, so from from on the portfolio company side, um, really, what you're investing in at this stage is is the quality of the team. Um, of course, they have to have a a product that's scalable and be in a market that's attractive and have you know the underlying macroeconomics of what they're building into have to support their business. But over time, realistically, what a leadership team is, is they're sitting at the nexus of taking in customer feedback and then iterating that into either product ideation or, or changes in their go-to-market strategy or any of, any, any of the kind of underlying mechanics of how a business functions. So really what we're doing is we're waiting, is this concept, is this business scalable? And is this the team that's going to then scale that company? How big uh, of a piece is the team? I would say it's... Um, I, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily 50-50 with a concept or idea. I would almost value a team as, high, as, as a uh, slightly more important component because, again, with how long it takes for an investment to eventually play out in, in the venture capital space, um, there's so much time between when the investment is made and, and what the company actually will become. You have multiple product iterations in that time, and you're really reliant upon the team to do that. And so you're, you're investing into the potential of the team that's running it as much as the potential of the product service they're developing. Absolutely. But it's not like we're just going to see a team that has great pedigree and say, uh, we don't really understand your product, but we're going to invest in you and go build it. No, we want to see, you know, a, a real, a real ideation, a real pathway. They're thinking three to four steps ahead. Um, and we, we want to understand what we're investing in. Yeah, so you're not, you're not, I mean, when, cause you use the word pedigree, you're not necessarily just looking for a particular degree from somewhere prestigious. Are you looking for, for them to have had history, you know, with the successful startup before this one? Um, you know, are there any other variables that like, you know, you're considering where you're going, Hey, if you're, if this is your first one, you know, it's, you're a lot riskier of a bet than this is your third. Yeah. All of that plays into the decision-making process. Obviously, if they have a few startups under their belt, uh, whether they've succeeded or failed, at least they, they've learned some lessons. Um, but there are a lot of people that have great ideas that it's, it's their first time really coming out of the gate. So it's, it's, uh, both of those, I think. And every decision, every, every one is probably a little different. It's a different variable mix, you know, different product, different service, different team. And so you got a lot at play. So it sounds like the only real way to figure out if it's a good match is doing them doing like a discovery meeting with you all. And you really drilling into what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, uh, a common trait that we would see in the founders that we believe are the most compelling and, and in the teams that we are, believe are the most compelling is their ability to understand their customer from a previous point of pain. So either they were their customer or they were serving, servicing their customer in another facet and they have a deep understanding of why the problem that they're building to solve is a problem for their customer or their user or whoever it may be. That makes sense. And, and so I know that like, you know, one of the things that I was a little taken aback on and when I was doing research of different, you know, VC and PE funds was how, how much capital the founders have contributed in yours. I mean, usually it's like a one to 2% and you all, I think are like a 40% somewhere in that range. You know, what, what yeah, that definitely signals that you all are, are all in, 
But I mean, what was the ideology behind that? Yeah, I mean, really, it grew out of uh, of the idea that general partners wanted to put their money together to um, to fill this gap. And then along the way, we said, well, what is the right size of the fund? And we determined $20 million. And just the way that all works out in the calculus was the right number for this region. And we had already committed, you know, five to 10 million uh, amongst the general partners. So we just needed to, to come up with the rest to really fill out that efficient size fund. Makes sense. But from an investor standpoint, it's, it would almost feel like it's less risky because your your general partners are really, really right there in there with you. Yeah, all, all general partners are putting their money where their mouth is and have a, you know, highly vested stake in seeing that this is a successful fund. Um, and just being hands on with every investment decision and, and you know, not uh, not being passive. Um, and then for the uh, for the companies we invest in as well, they know that that we're there for the long haul. That makes sense. And so, like, how does the 10 year horizon factor in there? As I was looking at it, it kind of seemed like, you know, on, on a short term investment, it was a five to 10 year and then longer term ones were, were upwards to 20. So why the 10 year? So when you think of, uh, of venture-backed companies, the, the kind of the eight to 10-year range is what makes the most sense because what a venture fund does is they spend the first three years to four years approximately going out and making investments. And you're investing in... this. Is, it's very different from investing in, in a public company whereby you can sell shares at any point to realize liquidity. Realistically, what a venture fund needs to do is they need to invest in a company and then see that company through to fruition, either at a sale or an IPO or some sort of liquidity event. Um, and for that, for, to have enough time for all of those bets that you've made inside of that portfolio in the first four years of investing, you need the time horizon to allow those companies to really reach the scale and value that you would be seeking for that to, to be recaptured. You know, so, so for some of the, that you're investing into, you know, what's the way that you're thinking about them? You're going, hey, if, if we're investing into you or if you want to be someone that we invest into, it, this is a long-term partnership and, and you know, our success is really much tied to yours? Absolutely. Uh, with, with being shareholders right alongside the founders, we have the exact same economic interest as, as the founders do. And that's in seeing that their companies become successful, leading enterprises built here in, in, in Florida. And so, how how are you how are you curating the the potential people that you want to invest into? So, if this was a startup listening to this, what are the things that they should be doing to get in front of you? Is it just be involved in a tech tech startup, and we're very much like you know college scouts? And you, if you're doing good things, we'll hear about you. I mean, if I'm a startup, what what what's my advice to get in front of someone like y'all? Well, I think one of the the great questions is what makes a company scalable, and what you know what makes a company investable. I think that's where a lot of education can go on, especially as, like I said, it's a, na a nascent um, ecosystem for tech startups and tech investing. So that, that needs to be um, kind of institutionalized knowledge base amongst the people in the community. It, what company am I trying to build? Am I trying to build a lifestyle business for myself? Am I trying to build a consulting business that, that needs human capital to grow? Or am I growing with a technology-based business that is highly scalable, high gross margins. And uh, Andres, you want to talk more about how you define what high growth is? Sure. So if you look across um, at, at recent IPOs of venture-backed businesses, typically the, the founder, uh, the, main, the, the largest shareholder founder will have between about 4 and 10% of the company at that stage. And what, what I think, if you're a founder, the way to think about that is once you're starting to take on capital in this capacity of whereby you're looking for maximum growth at all stages, 
are you willing to then go down to that level of ownership to still have the level of success that you have in your mind? I think we've spoken a lot about that. Not every business is venture back backable. In fact, I would say that 99% of businesses would be far better served being able to reinvest on their own profits and grow over time. You know, raise debt based on the cash flow or something else. Yeah. Correct. A, a venture funded business is a very specific business model. And that's why venture funds can typically lean towards technology companies, advanced materials companies, things whereby you don't have very much additional marginal cost with every new customer that you get. Or it, it doesn't cost you $1 uh, to, to get one customer. It's over time, the amount that you have to spend per customer goes down. That makes sense. Like your, your cost of goods isn't necessarily tied to the widget that you're making. You know, and a good example is like you take someone like Facebook and what they're able to profit off of, what are they doing, 30, 40 billion in sales, something like that. Um, and you compare that to someone who's localized like us, like Publix, mm -hmm. who's doing in that same range of, of, uh, of top line, but the profitability is maybe a third of it. So, so that, that unhinging the cost of goods from the widget is, is what kind of seems like it unhinges your ability to, to really accentuate the investment. Right. And there's pros and cons to, to both of those business models. Um, you don't have necessarily the underlying assets that hard, hard cost businesses have. Um, and you, you know, you're constantly at risk of being disrupted, but. So you're uh, more susceptible to the trend changing. Sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you get you if you if you become less cool, you don't necessarily have real estate or offices or hard assets that substantiate the value of the business on the value. So that's the big risk that you all take when you're going with the tech and in, tech investment. Then is you know is that they, if it's on a cool factor, it may not may not play out. And like Andrea said, it's maybe one percent of you know all the companies that are being started, but it's ninety nine percent of the media airtime and you know the sex appeal is all about these tech companies. And that's why you have companies like WeWork that try their hardest to make every claim that they're tech enabled when mm -hmm. really they're just a real estate business. Mm -hmm. And then you see their valuations go sky high until people realize, wait a minute, this isn't a tech business. And you know, it was just a disconnect in the in the beginning of what kind of business am I actually building? Because some of them will just basically try to go public and then and then play off of the retail investor that may not, you know, know more than the headlines buying up the stock. Like WeWork was a real hot hot one until you know the financial arbitrage of their model kind of caught up with them. Okay. That makes sense. You know, so so I know that Tampa has been your main focus and I get the feeling that it's because of the robust like university infrastructure that's over there. You know, you got University Tampa's entrepreneurs um, a, a community, you've got USF's entrepreneurial community, plus you've got even HCC's, you know, so what makes Tampa different from Lakeland? Because I, when I think about Lakeland, I think of a lot of, you know, we got a lot of colleges, but they're not as big as, as maybe those other university systems. Well, and one of the, the biggest things that contributes to a tech ecosystem is simply having companies that came before you that then exited, gave the founders some liquidity to go back and, and do it all over again. So that's kind of something that's that's kind of taken for granted or not really looked at as much as it should be. So you have to have some of those businesses to get the ball rolling. And Tampa, quite frankly, has had some, uh, even just in the last few years, there's been some pretty substantial exits. And that just, you know, fuels the fire of that whole ecosystem. And we consider ourselves over in Lakeland as, you know, part of the greater Tampa Bay community. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we're two different regions. We're all, you know, Tampa Bay Ventures is spanning this this whole area of Central Florida. Well, I think where, where that comes from me is like when I when I look at 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 the at the companies that have been invested into maybe over the last five ten years, and then the ones that have hit hard. There's been a lot more that's come out of that out of like that you know, Hillsborough County Tampa Bay ecosystem. There has out of the Polk County, and so like I, 
guess like the angle that, that, that I'm interested in is like, what can we be doing differently in Polk to maybe um, stir up more of the right type of, of tech startups? Is it, is it just a, like a, a, an infrastructural thing, like faster internet, which I don't, I, you know, didn't, didn't feel right, but you know, so is it really just, you got to wait for someone to hit it big out here. So that investment capital continues to, to push forward momentum. Yeah. I think capital plays an extreme role in the availability for these business models to be viable. So with the availability of capital, uh, entrepreneurs have the ability to build the business models that rely upon capital to be built. So that may be a, a partial component. Like Wesley mentioned, when you, you, you have a lot of other ecosystems, take Austin, Stockholm, uh, Berlin, that are very much built upon having one or two large companies exit that creates a few hundred employees who had share options in the, in the company. Then they go out and either start a new company or invest in their friends' companies and that flywheel begins to take place. That makes sense. So it, it, it makes sense. So when you've got these employees with stock options, now they're new investors or new startup people. I got it. Okay. Precisely. And, and that's where we really believe that by playing that, maybe that first role here in Lakeland, uh, Tampa Bay Ventures can be a big contributor to the creation of that flywheel effect by finding one or two companies that end up becoming the, those leading enterprises. Okay. So, you know, on that note, like when, when you, when you, if you're describing a company that needs, you know, just needs capital. So is it ever someone who just needs capital or is it usually they need capital and expertise? They need capital. Nowadays they need help finding the right employees. The, you know, the talent is just so scarce. So that's another element of our ecosystem. You know, Florida Poly is great, but it's just starting. It's just starting to put out the talent. And when you have that here, you're going to get people to open up regional offices. You're going to get people to think about starting their business here, especially if there's access to capital. And that's, again, part of that flywheel that one thing that they probably did have in Tampa that we're just not getting is more of the technical talent. That makes sense. And, and so when you're, when you're thinking about the per, the, this company where they need expertise and they need, and they need capital, does the product need to be proprietary? Does it need to be something they've got a patent on that no one else can duplicate? Or, or do you get into tech-enabled commoditized markets? I mean, it, it, what are your thoughts on that? I think from my perspective, you don't want to spend all your capital on, on legal fees. No, well, and a lot of, and a lot of stuff, a patent is, is, is basically just giving your competitors the blueprint of how to, how to knock it off and change a couple of things. But so then as you're moving forward, that does be, need to be something that is definitely in the forefront of your mind because IP is extremely valuable to these companies. Right. At the very early stages of iteration, especially in tech, you know, again, with that difference between maybe a tangible uh, real world business versus a, a technology company is you can simply make a small tweak to any product and, and you're basically around a lot of the IP protection inside of technology. You really have to patent an entire business model enablement portion for it to be protectable. And to do that, you need to get to scale. So as these companies scale, then that's when they can invest more in their IP strategies. But in the early stage, um, being able to have the best user experience or the best customer experience is one of the best protections you can have. Okay, that makes sense. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be proprietary, but you, you almost want it to angle in that direction and be something that not everybody else is already doing. Okay. Uh, but that might be countered then if you go into, say, the material sciences world, whereby um, you, you absolutely are completely relying upon the the intellectual property of the company since that's what you then are licensing out to customers. Okay. How much like of the, the Ubers of, you know, fill in the blank, are you all really 
going after versus someone who's making a physical product. You know, like, so when I think of Uber, I think of a service that really just found a different way to package and sell something that already existed. Um, and then they, and they leverage it to build an infrastructure that was a little bit more controllable by them. That's back to the gross margins yeah. talking to software enabled technology enabled businesses that are able to scale more efficiently. So far, I think most of the ones we've looked at, but again, we're, we're on a three to four year investing time horizon. So we're just starting to look at companies. We've made what one, almost mm-hmm. two investments at this point out of, you know, maybe 12, 15 that we're going to make throughout the course of the fund. So uh, to us, it's more about looking at them over time. And I'm not sure what those are going to look like, but so far, a lot of them are those software enabled, the Ubers of the, you know, whatever else is of the world. Cause that, that would make them easier to scale easier to scale and but you never know what you're going to see i mean there's going to be the next uh prototype that's you know the blank of the next blank so yeah, it's the next apple of the next century again when you think of the you know the long arc of history we're pretty early on in the whole tech technological uh, changing the world to be more technological based so i feel like there's just so much that we don't even know is going to come. And that's, you have to be on the forefront. of. I guess that makes sense. Cause when you're going through it, you, you think that all the, uh, you, you know, think the beach all the properties are- already, already bought, but you're like, man, we're still one block off the beach. None. We got, we got a whole nother lifetime to sell in one block off the beach. Cause yeah, there's so many, so many older industries that, that really aren't leveraging technology yet in their, in their systems and processes. Well, it's things that came out five years ago. It's like, we thought we'd had those for all of eternity basically is the way people think about it. Like, once it's created, it, it becomes obvious, but until it's created, you know, no one thought about it. Man, you know, that's, that's a, that's kind of an interesting angle, you know, cause, cause you, what you just touched on for me was, you know, some of these things that you might, you might look at today and say, man, this is budding technology. And then five years from now, you're like, this is, this is very old technology. You know, w- w- what, what are you doing with the startups that you're investing into to kind of ensure that that technology is a little bit more evergreen, a little bit more, cause you're looking at 10 year, 10 year lifespan here, at least. Um, the way in which we think about this is if you look across, if you think of the largest technology companies that you can think of today, um, Google, Netflix, Facebook, Amazon, the vast majority of these companies are not based upon a single technical innovation. Um, with Google, certainly it is with its search bank algorithm, but the vast majority of these companies are actually utilizing a technical innovation to deliver business model innovation. And that's really where the key is for, for a lot of venture, venture funded companies is that they will leverage a technical innovation as a piece of infrastructure to then deliver uh, a new business model to a customer in a way that wasn't previously available. So for your example of Uber, for example, um, with GPS enablement and phones, they were able to locate where somebody actually is so you can deliver a car to them versus maybe two to three years prior to that you don't have that ability and you'd have to coordinate everything via SMS. Yeah, get an address, cross street, something like that. Correct. So the vast, vast majority of large technical businesses um, are, are more so innovating on the side of their business model rather than the actual underlying infrastructure that they're using. And of course, you do have a few very large infrastructure companies, but, but they're typically rare and they're winner take all and they're very difficult to see at the early stages. That makes sense. And so you're going, you wouldn't even know if it was going to be, you didn't know Amazon was going to be Amazon in year one. I mean, maybe, right. maybe, maybe someone really smart did, but. Well, and how many, you know, online bookstores or whatever else stores came along at the same time as Amazon. And, you know, for whatever reason, Amazon became what Amazon is, but it started out as one online store amongst many. 
So if when you're making an investment into a startup, how much equity should they be prepared to, to let go of? And is there, is there even a standard answer to that? I wouldn't say that there's a standard answer to that. Um, obviously, it's finding a balance whereby the fund or your investors are, are, are properly incentivized to invest in the company and they're adequately compensated for the risk that they're taking by investing into an early stage company, particularly with a fund or a firm. Um, you're investing other people's money. And so it's incredibly important that the risk that you're taking on by, by investing in an early stage company is properly priced and, and understood. Uh, but then also you want the founders to be able to raise multiple rounds of funding if they're building this type of business and still maintain enough control in the company to actually see a large amount of the value if, if, if they do achieve what they're setting out to build. So I wouldn't say that there's a standard answer there, but finding that balance between the adequate pricing of risk for your investors and the right amount of compensation for the founders for building this company is very important. That makes sense. There's a fair amount of strategy that goes into it because you're going, I want to keep this founder incentivized as the person who's got to run it. So I'm not looking to bleed them down to no equity because then if, if it goes to zero, they don't really care. They don't have a, as, as much to lose as what I do. And you got to leave space for the next round. You got to leave space for the employee options. So there's a lot of uh, calculations that go into that. Yeah. So, so the check comes in, do, do like, I think that a lot of founders think check comes in and I personally now, you know, I've been, I've been living hand to mouth. We got money in the bank. Now, now I've got a little money. Is that true? Or is it more like now nah, check goes in and it's earmarked for very specific things at very specific times. And we're not looking to, to finance a bonus program for the, for the, uh, for the current owner. I, I mean, I have a very specific opinion on this. I feel that <laughs> Celebrating financing rounds to me is, is somewhat strange because if you were to open a, line, a letter of credit at the bank for the same amount, it wouldn't nearly be as celebrated. Um, and, and it really should be treated the same is that you've acquired a new tool for your business. The, the thing that should be celebrated is when the business makes a milestone step forward in achieving its, its underlying goal. Using that capital to actually make gains in their business yeah. model. Right. So... You really want someone with the uh, work starts now mentality when investment has been received, not we've, we've crossed the finish line and we just got to survive to the next round. Right. And, it, and it's because it, it, it really isn't a finish line. The finish line is, did you deliver on the underlying value that you were trying to deliver to your customers or to your users? That realistically is the finish line. You haven't necessarily achieved anything through, through a financing round, merely acquired a tool that you wouldn't celebrate buying a new shovel before you're about to build a house. You celebrate when you built the house, and it's a, it's a similar similar point. That makes that makes perfect sense. You know, so um, so you know, from an equity standpoint, it can be kind of all over the place. It just just depends on on what the what the overarching strategy is, how big the business is. Is there a particular like is there a, a, a revenue floor that you are going? Hey, if you're not at least doing this much in rev, we we don't usually tend to look at this. Or again, is that all is that all over the place as well? I mean, the revenue, I think we, we do look at post revenue. So we want to see that you have a product that you're selling. You're actually, you know, bringing in some money from customers. Um, do you have a target for what you want to see there? There's, it's very dependent upon the business model. Um, there are certain companies whereby you're building a user base first, and then it's very simple to turn on revenue channels later. That's one of the advantages of a technology company is that you can build a large community and a large user base. and then you, you now have a, a big pool of customers to potentially sell valuable products later. And because it's digital tools, you know, it's basically a flip of a switch to, to enable those, those products to exist. I wouldn't say there's necessarily a floor or a ceiling 
with a range similar mm-hmm. to what you might have if you were buying more traditional companies. Um, but but like Wesley said, I mean, realistically, what what our capital should be used for is for the first step of commercialization. So if there's minimal revenues at, at the point of our investment, really what our investment should be used is to is to garner the first step of commercialization. Yeah, and if you're showing a hundred thousand dollars and you've been open for a year, that's a totally different thing than if you've been open for five years and you're showing that same revenue. So it's all about growth metrics as well. That makes sense. It all depends kind of where your starting point is, where you're at, and like you're saying, if you're if you're more a tech enabled company, it might be a ton of upfront costs and then not much incremental cost once you start pulling revenue in. Uh, so, so you're going, you, you might be at, at ground floor zero in terms of revenue, maybe not even really monetized it, but beta tested it, got, gotten really good uh, feedback and have a pool of customers that you think you can go to market with and just need capital. Okay. That makes sense. You know, so when you all make a decision to invest in somebody, what, what's the process that you, that you put them through? Okay, that one. Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we maintain a, a pretty strict investment process uh, with ourselves. And that's to be respectful of both the, fa- of the founders and, and of their timeline for, for fundraising. Um, many of us at the fund have been previous founders or have worked at tech-enabled companies and understand uh, how difficult fundraising is and how distracting it can be from delivering on that ultimate mission of what you're building. So for us, we have um, a horizon of from our first meeting with a founder to by the time we're done with an investment round should be about six weeks. And in that time, there's typically a, a first meeting with one of the general partners. Uh, and then the, that general partner, maybe along with others, will go back and do a, a phase of research of trying to understand your concept, uh, of understanding the market that you're working in, and maybe doing our own research through other partners that we know that have worked in that industry. Um, following that, there'll be a second meeting whereby the entire general partnership is briefed on the company and is a- able to provide their unique insight. So Wesley may have fantastic insights on, on one vertical versus I may have better insights on another vertical, Marcus on his and, and, and Tom on his as well. So by having that, that blended view of a company uh, and being able to ask the founders the questions from different, hori- uh, different horizons is, is, is very important for us. Uh, and then following that meeting is when an investment decision is made. And if the company is something that we want to move forward with, then we go through a, a due diligence process where we just try and figure out, is everybody who says they work at a company at the company? Is everything that they've told us true? And, and um, is, is, are there any risks that we're taking on the way that the company is structured? That makes sense. So, you know, what do I not know, you know, based on what you've tried to sell me on now? Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So if, if, you know, now switching gears, like just thinking about it from, from an investor standpoint, like someone that could be a potential investor into your fund, um, what does that person look like for you? Like, should they, should they, are they, you know, in a particular class? Are they looking for a particular type of investment? Yeah, we definitely want to make sure it's someone that's diversified. We don't want them putting all of their eggs into, into this basket or to other funds like ourselves. I mean, this, this is a very risky play. It should be considered as such. Uh, there's high reward, but with high reward comes high risk. Um, so it should be someone that is prepared to, uh, you know, put that money on the table. Um, that said, it's, it is one of the best performing asset classes out there. Um, and you know, it, to me, it's not only is it a good investment, but it's necessary for the community, for the ecosystem, for the economic development of a region. So that's why I like to invest in these types of things more than even the, the financial metrics or, you know, what percent return am I going to get? It's that I know that this capital is being put to work in our community 
growing these businesses that's going to have, again, back to the flywheel effect of building this ecosystem, building this, uh, not only the tech ecosystem, but it just, it, it, it's pervasive throughout the entire business community. That makes sense. How like hands off or hands on is that investment? Um, or can the investor be with the investment? Like, can they get granular to saying, Hey, I'd like to invest into the fund, but I I'd really like to be on the board of the people of, of the you know people who are evaluating these companies. I want to get my hands dirty with it rather than just be a, a silent investor. Right. So really the advantage of what investing in a venture fund does uh, for an investor is, is two things is one, it gets, it allows you to put your capital alongside professional investors who on a daily basis, our jobs are to understand these companies and understand how to manage our portfolios and manage these investments. Often what you can have as an early stage investor is you're going between such different verticals that it can be very difficult if it's not a full-time job uh, to be able to manage an adequate portfolio to offset the risk that you're taking. And the other advantage is that you're able with the same check size to invest across 20 companies rather than one. And as this is a, a high-risk asset class on an individual basis, you really need that, that developed portfolio to offset that risk. Um, and that's why typically venture funds perform better than individual angel investors is because they're able to create large enough portfolios whereby they have a much better chance of having that outsized return. So I would say for, for those who really want to get involved and active in their investments, they already know that they're angel investors and, and they'll become that. Um, but for the vast majority of, of investors who are interested in technology, the best way to offset that risk is, is to use a diversified vehicle like an investment fund. That makes sense. And so by getting to pick a, a particular investment, you really, um, you, 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 you break the, uh, the mitigation of a risk that happens when you're taking your same investment, you spread against all 20 of them because you all already are kind of assuming that a certain portion of these aren't going to go to the next level. But, right. but, but, the, but the hope is that one or two of them, you know, hit pay dirt and that, that carries a lot of the investment from the fund. That's exactly right. And that's one reason the three general partners did decide to put in so much money. We knew we were going to be the ones doing the due diligence, doing the legwork. You know, the other investors generally are not going to be putting in per person nearly as much. And, you know, we're not going to we don't spread around. OK, you know, give a board seat to these people. We knew we we're the ones taking on the, the legwork. So, again, they're really investing in, in us, uh, not so much myself, but Marcus and Tom, who really have experience being uh, successful entrepreneurs and, and, and business runners and have had great exits. Um, so those two are real, they, they really instill a lot of confidence in the investors. Well, that makes sense. And actually, when you look at it through that lens as an investor, it kind of makes you feel good because you're, because what you're really saying is they're going, Hey, we're going to be so hands-on in this process and that we're, we're so sure that it's going to be successful. We want more skin in the game than one or 2%. We're not going to do all this work for one or 2%. We want a meaningful percentage. Well, and, and, and from, from that perspective, you know, if someone's listening to this and they're either um, an, a potential investor, and I know that we haven't really gone over the numbers. I don't even know if I'm allowed to disclose this, but I, I know that you all are looking for like minimum investment of a hundred, which is actually pretty reasonable for this kind of asset class. So this might be something where you've got a big stock portfolio or, or a commercial property portfolio, and you want to get into this as an addition to it, you can start for as little as a hundred thousand dollars in the fund, um, which I think that's a meaningful number to share. Um, and I think that that actually makes it accessible for a lot more people than I, than I would have considered. Like before I investigated you all, I would have thought, hey, me as an investor, this is this is going to be too big of a check. 
Um, whereas I think for a lot of the investors, even here in Lakeland, it, it's something that, that they could, uh, that they could probably come up with if they want to get into yeah, it. Yeah, it's definitely an approachable figure. And, and again, to, to me, the, the, the big draw is that this money is being reinvested right here. So we're trying to fund businesses that either move here or homegrown, um, but they're going to make an impact in the Tampa Bay community, including Lakeland. I love it. You know, and so like you said at the beginning of this podcast, like they're investing into you all, you know, you, you all are the ones that are going to be sniffing out the deals, vetting the, the, the startups and then working with them to, to make them successful. So, you know, a big piece of this investment is you all. Um, so if someone's listening to this and they're going, that sounds like something I want to be a part of, or I'd like to invest into, or I'd like to learn more about what's, what's the best first step for them? I mean, for investors, they can check out the website, tampabay.ventures. For companies that are starting, you know, people at Catapult, people in the in Polk County, Hillsboro, everywhere across the uh, Tampa Bay region, uh, you know, we want to hear from you. We want to know what you're doing. Uh, even if what you're doing is not right for us now, we, we want to, uh, you know, be a part of the conversation. And, you know, there could be plenty of things in the future. But we, we, we really just want to, uh, you know, we're sitting right here at Catapult. Catapult is definitely an epicenter in Polk County for uh, for startups and for for small entrepreneurs, and we're going to be a part of that com- that community. We we are a part of that community, and we're, we'll be here, you know, uh, doing talks and just you know being present. So we're, we're easy to find. Love it. Well, thank you all so much for coming on today and and running through everything with us. I cannot wait to catch up with you. Probably the only thing I wish I could have asked you about that I'm not sure you would have shared is just what startups you're working on and what they're up to. But I, you know, is that even something you're, you're open to sharing? We'll have a few uh, announcements soon of our our next round of investments that are really exciting. I guess that's a no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I figured it would be a no, but I was like, you know, if I was going to, if I was going to close with one question that maybe, you know, I can tell by Andreas, he, he doesn't say much that he doesn't intend to say. And, um, (laughs) and I am working on that. I, as a skill I have not yet developed, but love it. Well, one thing I think, uh, people should come away from this is that there are people moving here to start their businesses now. So, you know, it's not because of us. It's because this ecosystem has been brewing. Um, and, you know, everybody sees the addition of traffic, the addition or the, the appreciation of housing prices as people are moving here. Um, that's not just, uh, you know, people with remote jobs. That's people coming here to start businesses. And it's, it's kind of an exciting time. That's what I'm seeing too. You know, I mean, that's I, honestly, I was sharing with y'all before we started this, how like jazzed I am about Catapult. But I mean, it's, it's a great investment in this community. I mean, like not a lot of people here realize that like their seat costs them like four or five times as much as what the membership does. It's a huge investment into our community over oh, yeah. here. Catapult is the premier co-working incubator across the country. I mean, there's some that rival it, rival it but it, it's definitely top tier. Well, yeah. I mean, like even just from the maker space, they got over a million dollars or almost a million dollars worth of equipment down there. I mean, like I, I was checking out their CNC machines, like $130,000 CNC machine. And for you know, a few hours of, of tutorials and, and an additional 50 bucks a month, you too can make whatever you want on it. And I'm going, if, if people, at least locally in Lakeland have never had access to these kind of tools to be successful. I mean, my internet connection at my, at my main office is more than a catapult um, membership is, <laughs> right. and, you know, and, yeah. and, 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 and for that you're legit. I mean, like we're, you all can't really see the the view here, but I mean, like you're in a, 
you're in an executive corner office. You've got ex- access to a great ecosystem here. You've got people in the kitchen cooking up food every day that you can go, you know, try out. Oh man, it's an energizing place. And, you know, I think it solves one of the problems that a lot of like founders don't really talk about, which is that loneliness. You know, when you're building something, you can't talk to your employees the same way you can to other entrepreneurs that are going through something similar. There's some things that you got to hold too close to the vest. You can't share. You're going through being around here, you'll get access to 18 year old kids that'll humble you because of their drive and, and the execution behind their drive, push you to do more. And, and then when you're having one of those bad days or someone to kind of, kind of pull you up, you know, and I, and I think that's a big piece. So you kind of rewind what startups looked like you know, 10, 20 years ago. And it's a very isolating experience, which you can't get much advice. And the advice you do get is from people that are a lot of times incentivized to not give you the best advice. So I, I love this place. I, 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 uh, I appreciate the people who have invested into it that have made it possible. Well, thank you for the, for the time today. Thanks for the question. Absolutely. It's nice to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you all for coming on and we'll, uh, we'll definitely hopefully get to have you back one day. Thank you. Much appreciated. <laughs>